Welcome to Who All Gonna Be There, a podcast by artists for artists. We talk cash shit about everything, sometimes we get messy, and it all counts as art because we say so. I'm Mel, I'm black, a woman, an artist. All the intersections, none of the wage equity. This week, I'm a court stenographer, a hood geologist, and I recently started a magazine entitled Flavor, which reviews which local restaurants do and do not properly season their food. <laughs> Yo, what's up? Maximiliano, Maxi Max. Um, I'm making art things, staying busy, and most importantly, out of trouble. For everybody listening at home and wondering um, how to support an Turner project, you can subscribe to be a Patreon at VinTP. There are tons of great perks. Supporting us to an exclusive Patreon-only, exclusive podcast episodes, and our now legendary Patreon-exclusive, long-running zine publication, Book of Sedition. NTP, we got an Etsy with all our publications and our newest one, Black Abbey. We got totes, buttons, advice, etc. And now the buttons are also limited numbers, limited editions, and future currency. Subscribe to us on iTunes and all streaming platforms. Follow us at Nat Turner Project on all the social medias. You have a comment or question, want to confess your love of Melanie or Max? Email natturnerproject0 at gmail.com. Because without the zero, it goes to some white lady on the west coast, on the east coast. Word. All right, so today we are happy to be chatting with Donovan Smith. Hey, Donovan, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. So for those who don't know, Donovan Smith is an award-winning writer, artist, speaker, and fourth-generation Portlander. He recently served as a writer and co-host to the iHeartRadio podcast, Uprising, A Guide from Portland detailing the 100-plus days of protest in Portland, garnering more than 2.5 million downloads worldwide. In addition to his recent bylines at Street Roots and Portland Monthly, Donovan has produced a number of multimedia explorations on race and place for literary arts and Oregon humanities, Introducing his, including his seminar, The Oregon Case for Reparations. This three-week course pairs ta seminal 
the Case for Reparations article with Dr. Karen Gibson's Bleeding Albina and Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly album for a mosaic analysis of policy and resistance. His gentrification is weird platform, birthed out of his ignorant reflections clothing line, is dedicated to lifting up stories, histories, and futures of black Oregonians. Donovan also serves on a number of boards and committees, including vice chair of Beyond Black CDC and as second vice president of the Portland NAACP. So welcome, Donovan. Hey, hey. So our first question is a question we ask everyone um, since March of 2020. How are you doing, and how are you dealing with all of this? Um, I am, as of today, I'm doing all right. Like I was telling you off air, I made eggs, <laughs> <laughs> which makes me feel like I can cook, you know, like, because I can't actually cook. So anytime that I do something with pots and pans and like I use the, the whisper, whisker, yeah, that made me feel like lit. Um, <laughs> uh, I tried to cook a lot more since the pandemic too I was, that was the thing where I was like I'm going to make breakfast every morning like you've been doing mm-hmm. but that definitely fell off um, <laughs> but yeah I mean in the the last year I think there's been a lot of different emotions for me just kind of looking at the way things kind of th- there was like this lift of energy where I felt like we were about to see substantive massive overhaul of change like I felt we were like on the brink of it and then quickly watched it fizzle down like it was just it was nothing like I've seen before like I you know we we all have seen the Trayvon version the you know Freddie Gray version like Sandra like we've seen names that have gone national when there's been like stuff that's been happening locally that gets no coverage but yeah I felt like we were about to see something and so that's kind of not tight Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, so that's been a thing but also haven't been like going at the rate that I've been going since before this like I think there's also a level of just kind of like well that happened that's where we're at. Got to keep going, you know, type of thing for for me. So, keep going is where my my head has been at, and then also uh, trying to find the places for me to keep go, keep going, and then also find more time for myself to like recharge and do less of just throwing as much as all of myself into all the things because that also is a level of like tired that I feel all the time and so um, that's not sustainable that's why so many people talk about burnout and all that stuff and you know I'm 29 like we were talking about so I want to be able to I like how you say 29 like that's old (laughs) no I'm saying it like I'm young like I'm 29 like and I don't want to be 35 and like dang I can't do it anymore (laughs) you know like that's That's still young too um and it it, yeah we're we're fighting and so you even in a fight you gotta find time to chill on the ropes a little Mm -hmm. bit and you know come back so yeah that's how I'm doing (laughs) but I made eggs good for you eggs are good eggs are important um so yeah you talked about 
um, the what we called the white guilt boon of night of June of 19 of June of 2020 and like everything that happened in like those three months in this like this sort of like rush to understand anti-racism and like uh, critical race theory and then like the general kind of dissolution of that interest. Do you feel that that period was important for like this fight or do you feel like it was kind of just a blip on the radar? I feel like any kind of rise in like massive consciousness for whatever the thing may be is good. Like general awareness um, is a thing. Um, Actually on the lift ride here, you know, I was able to get a few words down about for the bio that I was writing. Um, But then ended up getting looped up into conversation with the driver because she was like, what do you do? And I'm telling her, you know, I'm a writer and artist and she's asking me what I think. She's a white lady. Um, and she was telling me like her niece was down at the protest and her niece was giving her information that she had never heard before as somebody who's lived most of her life in Milwaukee, worked a lot in like downtown Portland, but she didn't know anything about certain stuff. And so, you know, I just told her she just is learning about the lash laws because of this lift ride. She didn't know that was a thing. She didn't know black people can own land here in Oregon. So I I don't know what information she was getting from her niece, but whatever information she learned, she felt like I'm having to think about these things differently. And, you know, she was asking me about the police and she's like, I'm a supporter of the police, but you know, I know Hmm. there's probably white supremacists in the police. I know there's like a lot of them. I know there's a lot of, Da 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 da, but you know I'm thinking about things differently. So I think the the kind of primers of thinking about things differently. It we just what didn't happen is like a, a massive overhaul and like people understanding, for example, like how deeply seated policing is in ter- in terms of like our destruction. Like, there's still a massive thinking of, like, we're going to reform our way there, you know, type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, you know, there were conversations that I had with people that I know who moved from a place in terms of, like, that summer to a thing. I mean, I think there was value you can't say there wasn't value even if the value is like new people meeting on the ground and starting you know an organization um and committing themselves to a more um like radical viewpoint and doing work um i think um you know even in places like the school that i went to oregon episcopal school um that school is almost as old as the state of Oregon. It's considered the, it has been considered the best school in the state, you know, and I went there for middle and high school. And so I was on there like, uh, I was on an alumni committee for some time, moved to this inclusion committee that they have. And just, they put out their statement, like when the George Floyd stuff happened, that stuff. Um, but they were like racism bad. Um, we understand that we have a long way to go. 
racism. They don't like that here. (laughs) (laughs) And they just got like, they got flamed on social media, even by the alumni body. Um, And then there was a young black woman who like led the charge in writing this letter um, to the, the school about how bad that statement was, how weak it was. Um, and just calling them out for moments of racism that she's experienced, that other black students have experienced, including like bringing the police to the school when um, they had requested them not to for some presentation and, you know, letting students call people the nick. Uh, I was going to say the N-word, but, you know, calling them nigger, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just kind of letting these policies and things go and just acting like things were cool. Um, And so it it spurred different conversations within the school. Now, in terms of like massive movement, that's a whole other place. In terms of things that I've been saying, like moving funds, like, like you're an institution that has more endowment at least last time I checked than the HPCU that I went to I went to Fisk University Oh, um, so that was one of the things when I first got to Fisk I was looking at I was like whoa this is crazy how does OES Oregon Episcopal School have more endowment than this black Ivy League school <laughs> um, I was like if y'all if y'all want to be doing something like drastically different to support the community I think like taking a good chunk of money and earmarking it towards community organizations and individuals that are doing work without the checks and balances of like grant reporting mm. and not having to make it be for this specific initiative, just giving the money um, would be more effective. And then just trying to open up scholarship money either just to get more black students into harmful environment. You know what I mean? Like actually supporting your community. Um, so it's given me more of a platform to talk about those things in terms of the movement on those things. Again, it's a different thing. So I guess there's been benefit, but obviously there's been the fizzle and there's been people kind of moving slower towards the <laughs> the movement um, in more recent months. Yeah. Um, so I want to like hear more about our, I think one of my first questions for you is, um, I think maybe the first thing that I feel like I knew you for or started seeing like all like around, like all these people like wearing, um, t-shirts and like hoodies or like seeing like banners and signs for like gentrification is weird. So I was curious about, um, hearing more about gentrification is weird. Um, like what that means to you, like what it is beyond, um, just like that saying, and um like i guess your ideas about like yeah like how it came about and like where you see it going forward if you do see it as some like future thing for sure i mean i have a clothing line you know ignorant reflections that i had first put out in like 2013 and it was really just a way for me to get out like thoughts through clothes um and then I was working on a project that Sharita Town was doing called Degentrifying Portland, where she was connecting, you know, young people to media like radio and learning how to film and all that stuff. So um, 
me and the person I was working with, Haley Bowski, I might be saying her name wrong, um, but we decided to go into like bars and barbershops and ask people in, in Northeast and ask them like what they liked about the area and it's just this really consistent answer from the white people uh, just like how weird and quirky the area was and how much used to not be there but now is there type of stuff remember the, we asked <laughs> it was Haley actually uh, so this woman was just talking about how great Portland has or Northeast has become and she was like so what about Gresham and the woman was like Gresham is not Portland <laughs> Gresham is not Portland. It was just this visceral kind of thing. Um, and then when we talked to the black folks, they're like, what I used to like, you know, type of thing. Mm-hmm. And like, I already understood it, but like, it was in the midst of doing that project that I like really, really felt how much the branding of Key Portland Weird like was present in, in the area. And it's not that we don't have weird ass black people because we do you know like it's nothing about that I think I'm pretty weird um <laughs> but I think you know I just kind of paired the two together and you know gentrification is weird just realizing how much the branding of it had affected aided by like policy and culture mm-hmm. um had aided in the push out um, as well and you know e- even in that I did not really know the guy who like created the Keep Portland Weird statement like it was more of a thing about like the indie culture at the time in the 90s like yeah. you know keeping more of that vibe but the understanding around what Keep Portland Weird has meant has changed I think even since he made it so yeah I, I put it out I didn't think it was going to be as much of a thing as it ended up becoming um i i remember the first person who bought it i like set up a table at psu and i just had i think it was just one shirt out and he was like can i have it i was like cool <laughs> i put it out on social media and then that was kind of the it just went um and so yeah it, it, it went and then it became such a thing where i was like this is it's like its own platform outside of the clothing brand. It's just a thing um, where, and then people kept kind of coming to me with things. So like we were doing the photo shoot um, for the hoodies and um, the hoodies and yard signs that I made. And uh, the photographer, Elijah Hassan was like, oh, this should be a, a, a exhibit like the thing. And so I was like, it should be. And I didn't know anything about doing the exhibit. I like put on social media like who has a museum that I can display and something like that and Sharita hit me up like hey you need some help (laughs) so she let me do the exhibit Uh, we curated together like a you know the photos but also made it a much larger experience than just like photos and had music there and like the dear port or dear next Portland mayor this black Portland needs this from you um, installation uh, as part of the people's plan um, and other things the bike ride that Laquita and I did the gentrification is weird bike ride from the villa to Vanport that was mm-hmm. like where she was like I want to call it gentrification is weird and we connected on that but yeah people just kept coming with requests 
And so it bellowed into its own thing. And so, you know, like five years later, I haven't like formalized it as any sort of like organization with a steering committee or anything like that. It's more just kind of a, I recognize it as a, a lightning bolt that I can get people, you know, to, to pay attention to an action or a thing. Um, so I just kind of use it as a way to direct people towards things that I'm already mm-hmm. doing, um, projects that I'm working on, initiatives, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, you mentioned like kind of like the branding of Portland as like mm-hmm. this weirdness, which to me has always read as kind of like coded, coded about whiteness and this like, like Portland being white, like embedded in that message. So I'm wondering like. Do you, I feel like your gentrific- gentrification is weird project is directly kind of like subverting that and counteracting that. Um, do you feel that that kind of branding of Portland being weird has shifted in the last few years, especially given what's going on now? Like, do you feel like people are like actively challenging that both locally and like nationally? Yeah, I think there's been a big pushback on it. I think because I know everybody says like Portlandia, but like I think the branding campaign that had been happening like before Portlandia being aided by like a show like Portlandia, which I don't think had any insidious intent. I think it was telling a point of view about the city. That's my honest uh, read on it. Um, But, you know, that and just it being cheaper you know than other places um in the west coast at the time Mm. you know brought a lot of people here and then in the midst of it you start like learning a little bit more about why northeast is the way that it is and i think a lot of people came from cities that actually had more diversity like i've heard a fair number of white people like like yeah even for me i was like well there's no black people around you know like type of thing now that that is what it is but i think nationally more and more people started like digging in like there was that big profile from uh cbs um like in 2014 i want to say about like the white supremacist culture here the atlantic did something i think the picture they used for that uh, article was like the Klan marching through Portland streets. Um, I think, you know, even like the Black Portlanders when Intasar was doing that project, like that for W. Um, Kamau Bell, yeah. Uh, well, even before that, she uh, got featured in uh, Al Jazeera and like several several other like national uh, publications for the work she was doing. Um, and I think there was just kind of this slow creep of like understanding that Portland is like strongly anti-black, like mm-hmm. not just a little racist, like this is the foundation of the thing. Um, and so I think that has fractured some of the image of of the place and and then of course, like in the last year, you know, like this is the complete opposite of mm-hmm. what um, you know. We had the little Beirut, you know, yeah, uh, branding too from Bush back in the '90s. But that, 
the protests over the the hundred days or whatever, I think also was kind of a shift of understanding. I don't think the media necessarily did a good job did at not. that time. No, they didn't. <laughs> yeah, because I, I had like national publications reaching out to me to do stuff, and I was like, at a certain point, I was just kind of like, I'm I'm good. Like, yeah. um, I don't I don't need to talk to anymore because I I don't feel like what I'm actually trying to convey will get through the sound bites that y'all need right now um so I, I i fell back but yeah um i i do think there has been to some degree a breaking of the the main point of view that's been put out about portland but i don't think there's been like an overhaul understanding of what portland is like not like a deep-seated understanding that we have the same racism as the South in many ways, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, I'm, uh, I'm curious about your thoughts around, um, what's today? June 12th. Now, like, yeah, with Juneteenth coming up. June 19th. Yeah. Today's the 7th? No, seven days until Juneteenth. Oh, okay. No, today's the 12th. All right. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Today's not the 7th. Um, (laughs) So yeah, with today being June twelfth, we're recording on June twelfth. Um, I was curious about yeah, like um, your thoughts around like Juneteenth historically, but also I feel like nowadays I feel like more and more there's just more and more like I feel like a wider awareness around it and what it is, and also I feel like more and more because of that that like growing awareness is like leading to like more events. I feel like more like parades, like festivals, like whatever else. I was just like curious about like yeah, what you thought about that, and also potentially where you could see that going in the future too I think it's pretty crazy you know like we were talking about the George Floyd and how important it was to like shifts Um, Juneteenth is one of the things that I think came from the last year um, uh, of cultural overhaul I think it was one of the low hanging fruits in many ways for people like yeah you want Juneteenth as a holiday (laughs) But I think Juneteenth has been here, you know, it's been here and people have been organizing even in Portland for a very long time to, you know, keep these events going. Um, But yeah, this year I just, when I'm on social media, I feel like I just keep seeing a new flyer every day for an event. Like, I don't know how people are going to hold all these events down, but dang, this is (laughs) crazy. Um, You know, I work with Beyond Black um, out in East County and so we before I was officially with them um, helped organize the first Juneteenth in Gresham um, and that was in 2019 Mm. and so we ended up planning that thing in like a month and some change it was crazy it was a lot of energy (laughs) but we ended up turning out like 2,000 people at Vance Park And it was mostly black folks. Nice. Um, And that was just like such a... I actually didn't grow up like celebrating Juneteenth or anything. I was aware loosely of what Juneteenth was, but it wasn't something where I like pointed my attention to. Um, And so really that beyond black, excuse me, Juneteenth where, you know, it's gentrification is weird with Friends of Noise curating the, the speakers and the entertainment for the stage... Um, 
but yeah, that was my first time really spending time with it. So it was nice to to be a part of the event, um, and, and also just understanding more. Um, and then the, we we wanted to make it an annual event, but then the pandemic hit. Yeah. Um, so we just did, you know, something on on the numbers the next day or on the next year, and this year we're looking at bringing it back, um, back at Vance Park. Um, believe it's. 12 to 6 p.m. just FYI um but yeah and, and the general kind of like sphere of everything I, it's cool to see more people understanding the significance of Juneteenth mm-hmm. as a day of freedom um looking at that as like an alternative even to July 4th mm-hmm. uh, like not celebrating July 4th at all mm-hmm. you know and it's like my celebration day, our celebration day, you know, yesterday, uh, I, I just did my ancestry stuff, mm-hmm. and yeah, so I was looking through some some of the stuff with my mom yesterday, and you know, my fourth great-grandparent, um, through my mom's dad's side, um, I was looking at that, and this man was born in like 1803, he was born in Alabama, and then it said death date, like Panola County, Texas. And so then we started like Googling, like, what's the population of Panola County, Texas? It's like 20,000 people. And like the whole bloodline, um, you know, has stayed Ballard's from all the way into my mom. I'm a Smith, but um, that's my dad's last name. So everybody was staying in Panola County, Texas um, after that man died. They're all Ballard's. And then we're like, was there slavery in Pinellas County, Texas? So we like typed that in. Um, and then there was like this thing that showed up, like a whole kind of thing about the plantations in Panola County and the time frames kind of aligned. There was even a note about like Alabama and Panola County. So it was like, this man was more than likely on somebody's plantation in Panola County, Texas. He might've got brought over from Alabama. Um, and that's the first ancestor that I'm not 100% sure because uh, you know this is just some quick Google searches yesterday but first ancestor that I can point to in my bloodline and say was probably enslaved mm-hmm. um, at 29 you know um, so yeah you know it's it's it, it's even different for me um, you know uh, yeah uh, so it's taken on a different meaning for me I'm going to be uh doing a hot air balloon ride on June nineteenth. I'm oh. gonna be flying Pan African flag over the sky. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, that's that's part of how I'm celebrating my day. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think uh I think it's cool. Oh yeah, like where are you a hot air ballooning? Uh like like forty minutes outside of the city. Okay, yeah, shit. and then I might hit one of the multiple celebrations that's happening. Nice um, after. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Do you have something or you Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> so you know, I I like to peruse the Twitters, particularly <laughs> the black Twitters. Um and there's been a little bit of pushback towards this sort of like national recognition of Juneteenth. This idea that, you know, this is a holiday that belongs to black people. Um and there's kind of an annoyance or an irritation of like the commodification of it and like these corporations kind of pandering towards it. 
even when they know very little about what the holiday is. Do you have any thoughts on that or opinions on, like, as, as Juneteenth becomes much more illuminated within a national consciousness, like, do you find that there are drawbacks to that kind of, like, general populist awareness of what Juneteenth is? Yeah, I was I was reading some stuff about like the Pride Parade um, mm. here in Portland today, actually, mm-hmm. um, and you know, like Kathleen Sadat being one of the few people that helped organize the first one back in like the late seventies. Mm-hmm. So it was her and six other people, um, and then there was like two hundred people that showed up to that march, and then um, there were people that were infiltrating and telling them they were going to go to hell and all that stuff during the parade but the parade kept growing every year grown 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 and now it's turned into like one of the biggest uh you know pride parades in the west coast but in that uh, article i was reading she was talking about like part of her feels like a way that like it's lost some of the political edge to it it doesn't have some of the same demands and everything that it used to it feels more like a party um which you know it's it's like a double edge is what she was saying and i was saying like i feel like this could happen to juneteenth you know i feel like the same kind of idea where yes there's a mass celebration um of black freedom mm-hmm. it could end up getting single to my old um, <laughs> you know and I, I could see it you know yeah. I could see it um, and I I don't have like a prescribed answer in terms of like how you stop that um, I think America likes to celebrate it likes to put its stamp on things and, and sell it so people can sell stuff mm-hmm. uh, sell your culture back to you mm-hmm. um so that's the thing it's a thing and i i yeah i don't have an automatic answer um in terms of the stop of it um it is like yeah there there's like a lot of things that come with it so i think that come with it but i do think there is a in corporate speak there's an opportunity um, with Juneteenth to, you know. Synogenism. I don't even know what that means. I just made that up. Oh, well, <laughs> shit. <laughs> um, I, I feel like I'm going to try and use it on Scrabble, <laughs> Scrabble or something. But, yeah, I feel like there there's an opportunity to, you know, keep the holiday, keep it towards the center, mm-hmm. and for us to keep the education about what it's supposed to be about. And if people want to participate, if people want to come to it as a day of celebration and learning, um, you know, that that is a thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, because I think the thing that gets lost in the Juneteenth celebration is like, you know, what it is, is the idea of Juneteenth, the reason for, for its existence is a further indictment of America and what it is like. The fact that slavery had ended and it took so many years for it to be enacted, I think that gets lost in the celebration of it all, I think, which is odd to me, but... (laughs) Yeah, Um, (laughs) that's uh, for sure a fact. Um, I think, yeah, America's not going to be rushing towards, like, 
looking at its wrongs and Juneteenth is definitely one of those like y'all are wrong and y'all have been wrong and then it also like I was saying people are looking to it as an alternative to July 4th like I don't know I, I haven't looked at the numbers but I'm sure July 4th makes so much money for this country like if people start divesting from July 4th you know even it as a point of patriotism and consumerism like it, it could do a lot to unravel uh, people's understanding if but again that's if people keep to the core what Juneteenth is supposed to be versus just just kind of mass we're free now type yeah. thing you know yeah yeah yeah, because I think at the at the core of Juneteenth is the idea of it's it's not about we're free. It's the idea that freedom itself is complicated, mm-hmm. um, which is something that fascinates me about what Juneteenth is. So, yeah. Um, I'm interested in uh, community work and um, like yeah, working with people. Do you have to be uh, a people person to engage in that kind of work? Do you consider yourself um, a people person? And then, um, like, what steps you do for, like, recharging? And, like, how often do you feel like recharging factors into, um, yeah, your, like, community work and working with people? Yeah, I I feel like I'm actually pretty reclusive in general. Um, I do a lot of work with people, for people, um, because I care about us, like in our like general collective well-being, but um, yeah, I'm pretty light to myself for the most part. Um, don't like a lot of energy around me, a lot of stimuli when I'm at the house. Like I like long walks on the beach now, <laughs> but I do. I just like kind of zoning out my headphones. Like I will. I've been known to walk out of a thing, like unannounced. <laughs> yeah, that like, sounds amazing. Yeah, <laughs> was that the Irish goodbye? Is that what it's called? That's I what I've heard, heard it called. <laughs> yeah, I like so. I think I do try and be personable. Um, you know, I try and be. A, I try and be aware. You know, um, but I think in terms of recharging for myself. Um, you know, also I haven't been the best at it. Um, I think at points I am going and doing something like seven days a week. I have like in some capacity. So it's, you know, I I now have a day job. So I'm doing day job. I'm working on several committees. I serve on beyond blackboard i'm on naacp second vice president like these are all things and then i like i got a meeting here i got a meeting here i got a meeting here i gotta go to this thing i gotta go to that thing um and even my day job is in the work and so i think i've had to be more aware of like how many places i put myself drawback um, and I'm trying to do that more. Like I, I'm trying to do that more. Spend time where I'm just laying around, not doing anything, <laughs> um, or you know, even trying to be more aware of like 
reaching out to those closest to me to spend time, you know, like even though I'm into myself, not into myself as conceited, but like, <laughs> <laughs> like you know, I'm pretty like I'm cool by myself, but like also there's a recharge and being around the people you you like and love, uh, family, especially since the pandemic, like got double, I got my double vax, um, so. You know, even being able to sit down yesterday with my mom and do that, you know, ancestry stuff is like we just sat down with each other for the first time, like mask on, like maybe a month and a half ago, then another time, like very spread out. And this was the first time that I felt comfortable enough to like be as close as we are excuse me at the table with her and it was nice to just be able to do that because we hadn't seen each other in like a year yeah so you know that type of stuff um is important for for me um yeah and just getting out into nature you know um is important for me making stuff making art stuff yeah making stuff you know uh whether it's you know uh, just doing a little quick design. I got a, I got trash stuff that I'll never put out, but just <laughs> you know, just making a design. Those are the most fun things, though. The things that will never see the light of day. The trash, the trash <laughs> uh, bins. I hope nobody ever does like a thing when I die where they're like Donovan's unreleased collections. Like <laughs> no, the Donovan mm. Smith estate has released. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no, I didn't want that out. Um, <laughs> Yeah, or writing lyrics or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, because I'm the best rapper in the city. You didn't know that. Though. Noted. Yeah, yeah. So anybody who wants to come challenge me, <laughs> should get we these have bars. like a cipher on who all gonna be there? <laughs> no, I'm playing. <laughs> I think that's like a really like interesting idea. Like I think like as artists we have this idea that like oh I've made something and now I'm releasing it out into the world and like even like coming to terms with like accepting that it's like not yours anymore the moment you give it to the world but then this like secondary idea that like all my like unreleased stuff all my like work in progresses could eventually like still be released into the world too and it's like like there's like this idea that like anything i create potentially the moment you put it outside of like your own body or self or like entity this idea potentially stops being yours in some ways even if we're just like thinking about time and like a bigger a bigger mm-hmm. level um, that's not specifically a question, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, not to be macabre or morbid, but if you wanted to, if you wanted that control over your work, you could like, you know, do it well and say this stuff is never to be released or whatever. You could do it like um, maybe like a Viking uh, funeral pyre where you just <laughs> are thrown with all your unfinished work um, and burned up together. We can't do that though because <laughs> we have so much of our stuff on the internet. Like you can't. Oh yeah. Yeah, like that's true. somebody gets my password and it's like, oh. About to make a hundred dollars today. Yeah, we're releasing all the all the MySpace bulletins. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, all my Black on Planet MySpace. posts. <laughs> oh shit. A, a book of Melanie Stevens Black Planet posts. <laughs> Yo, Black Planet was a time. Somebody it was a to, time. It was a while. Somebody needs to do something with that. Like <laughs> maybe that is your next <laughs> Melanie's Black Planet post. Yeah, I love that. I'm into it. <laughs> Um, another question I have, um, like in, in your bio, you mentioned being like a fourth generation, uh, Portlander. 
And um, I read, like, an article about you talking about, like, living all next to your family and, like, living in Cully, then, like, moving to Montevilla, and then, like, um, your shift as you've, like, grown up. And I was just, like, curious, yeah, like, hearing more about your background and what you feel, like, kind of, like, led you to the work you're doing now and, like, being invested in Portland and, like, being invested in, like, black people in Portland and, like, the community in Portland and all yeah. that. Yeah, I think for me, you know, especially early childhood, you know, being on 42nd, 42nd and Killingsworth and 42nd and Sumner, like, I was right there with fam. Like, my aunt uh, lived across the street from my mom. So, my aunt, my cousins, my first cousins, like, they all lived with her. At one point, my uncle, uh, when he got out, like, he was living in a trailer attached to our our apartment's electricity. Um, Like, um, and even my mom reminded me, like, at some point, my other uncle was, like, living with my aunt across the street, like, in the basement there. So, we all just kind of, like, cuddled up on on 42nd. Um, And then, like, my aunt also had the beauty salon that was attached to our apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there was, like, very much this tribal feeling. Just everybody was around, too. Just, like, fam, friends, like... Everybody's just around, you know, like it, it and it wasn't a school was around, everything was around. Um, and yeah, when I went to Oregon Episcopal, the school I was talking about, like it's on the edge of uh, it's literally like the border of Portland and Beaverton, it's in the West Hills and Raleigh Hills. So, you know, going out there starting in middle school, it was very much a different environment. You know, we moved from there. My mom went from an apartment to uh, living in, purchasing a home on 76 and Halsey, so just below 82nd, you know, but she was working all this overtime trying to, like, get her home. She put me in a private school to try and, like, set me on a different trajectory. She didn't graduate college, you know. Well, she didn't go to college. She had to start working. My grandmother, so I was like first generation, you know, for that in in my immediate fam, and so, anyways, being in that environment, I also felt very separated from community. Like being in the suburbs and being one of the few black kids in that area, um, and also very much remembering community as it existed, um, and that was also the time when community was like being ripped <laughs> like you know um so it was like a lot of different feelings um of like alienation but also still being rooted in different parts of the community um so yeah it was it was hard i also was getting a great education you know like i was talking about this yesterday um but yeah i got an education that continues to like be the base of so much of my work because I didn't finish college even though I went to college mm-hmm. um, the education I got from OES is why I'm able to be in so many other rooms and have as much understanding as I do um, because it was a prep school right. and even when I got to college I realized how much I knew when I was there um and so, you know, it was, even when I was 
in high school, I did this project, um, ironically, or not ironically, um, but it's like one of the marquee projects of your whole kind of high school career. Um, it's called the Long Form Journalism Project, the LJP. Um, so you spend like a chunk of your school year studying a, a particular thing. You choose. And I did mine on the gentrification of Northeast. And this was high school? This was high school, That's my junior year. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, that was the project I did. I remember like even that you have to present in front of your, your class remember the head of school he like chased me down after it was like this is amazing da, 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 da. so essentially that was a thesis you did a thesis it was in my high school. thesis yeah it was my thesis um and so yeah like I, I remember I didn't finish it I remember like I I was reading the paper I didn't even like I was like I didn't finish this I don't know what happened but I was like reading the thing I was like and then what happened to northeast Portland was <laughs> <laughs> like let me bust out like two minutes of content before i'm done (laughs) so i did (laughs) but i ended up telling my teacher later i was like i didn't finish the thing like there was just like a sentence that was unfinished Mm -hmm. um and i told her like i'm probably gonna work on this through like even past the school year i just want to kind of finish it and she was like you're probably gonna be working on this for the rest of your life um (laughs) and that statement always stuck with me and i think it's been true like I've been on kind of a track um, of research and um, just like familial exploration and um, you know community uplifts in and since that time Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and so I think it's been a mix of things that have led me to this place but you know when I went to college it was also a, you know, a direct effect of being in like this very white environment. Like I was looking at my college options. Like I also wasn't like preparing for college. Like my peers were like prepping for college. They knew like in sophomore and junior and senior. I wasn't thinking about that shit. Like <laughs> I wasn't. I, and I also didn't do very good in school because I didn't want to be there. Um, like I had like a. I think my GPA might have been like 1.9, 2.0, which is different for like in comparison to other places. Like the school is so good that a 2.0, 1.9 there is it hits different, but I also just wasn't trying. Um, so, but when it came to be that time, yeah, I was not looking at the NYU's and you know the Harvards and Stanford's, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like my peers were and I was like I'm gonna try HBCU wait why why did you choose an HBCU it was it was multiple things it was one I thought HBCU would be cool Mm -hmm. also stomp the yard was around (laughs) oh my god (laughs) I was like yeah (laughs) I can do that (laughs) I can't dance but I'll figure it out um (laughs) And, yeah, I was just, like, I think being in that environment and making that trek from 82nd to the West Hills, like, I would pass by here, literally, like, where we're at. Our bus would go from, you know, they would pick up by Lloyd Center. Like, they had a certain sector of people that they had to pick up over on this side and drive to the west side. So, 
I remember always passing by and going onto the freeway over here, just like, damn. I like I'm just passing and leaving Northeast. (laughs) (laughs) I hated it. (laughs) I hated it so much. Um, But yeah, I I wanted to be around more of us. Mm -hmm. Um, I I thought, you know, it'd be affirming for me. And it was. It was. Was it a little bit of a culture shock? And it definitely was that too. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, going from. Even Portland in general, let you know, let alone the type of school that I went to, um, I think it's just going to be like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Um, but I enjoyed my time there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in terms of seeing so many spans of people who were black, that was like even a thing for me, like seeing people who didn't even know they that they might be alive and are the first person to to go to college and then go on to become doctors mm-hmm. and stuff like that that it was like a thing to you know a black person who was adopted and grew up in a certain environment and came to the HBCU for a reason or Somebody who was of the African diaspora mm-hmm. that was first generation that came to this place. Like, there were so many different... Yeah, the breath. Yeah, the breath. It, it was like... It was affirming for me, too, right. you know? Um, and was it stricter? Like, that's something mm-hmm. that I... Like, friends of mine who went to HBCUs versus my experience at a PWI. Like, I felt like when I went to visit them on those campuses... There were more rules in place, which was weird to me. There are definitely rules like the, like there is a men's, uh, mm-hmm. men's dorm, women's dorm, Crossway, which was the integrated. And then there was another one that had gotten flooded out before I got oh. to the campus. Um, so it was never open while I was there, but like the freshman women's dorm, like no, no men could be in there like that was just a rule you couldn't be in there like that was a literal thing yeah. you know um and it's kind of some weird purity stuff you mm-hmm. know <laughs> mm-hmm. um so there was stuff like that i remember when we got there um you know they had all of us go do this uh protest of like in front of some place, uh, some museum, because they were holding some art that was supposed to be in Fisk's possession, but it was like mandatory that the freshmen go wow. to the protest. <laughs> and I'm on some news station, like protesting, but I like I was kind of joking while like I didn't really, I didn't have the investment in the thing. I was just like, all right, they got us down here at the protest, you know? Um, yeah. It's weird though. Like when I got older, I was like, "That's weird." Like this is freshman, you got to go to the protest. That's weird. That is very weird. Yeah, like you got to give me more. <laughs> At least make me matter. Like yeah. you know. But yeah, there were definitely things, but there also was. <laughs> there is also just like some wild freedoms, like yeah, in the I that too. in the general midst of like. I'm not going to put the place on blast, but there is a place in the general vicinity of the the school that if you happen to walk in and you happen to not be a certain age and you happen to want a beverage that maybe wasn't a beverage that you were allowed to have, that they maybe might not act like they know where you go to school and you might just like end up 
having a party later that night without <laughs> having to show any identification, you know? So, like, that was a regular thing. That's nice. Yeah, that was. <laughs> so, there was those type of opportunities. <laughs> opportunities. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I also, I had some of, like, the best experiences um, out there. Um, but I ended up only doing two years because. Let's say the school wasn't the best with paperwork. That's and another thing yeah. that HBCUs are known for. And that, so my writing career technically started because of... It started because of this. I wrote an opinion piece for the school newspaper that was being revived. Somebody hit me up like, you want to start writing for the school newspaper? I was like, bet. He was like, you'll have a column. It's called Don Spiracies. So I wrote about like how I got to the school and like when I was doing my research, I heard a lot of great things, but also heard like the paperwork was uh, and like that. Also, I kind of heard that about all HBCUs that paperwork can be. uh, (laughs) And so the piece got published, but I had already been kicked out by that time because paperwork. (laughs) And so there's a note in my and like next to my picture, I had a bald head at the time, like very low shaved mm-hmm. head. And it's like Donovan, Donovan got kicked out for the same reasons that he's mentioning in this article. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I got major love for Fisk because you know it gave me the validation as a writer. Even like mm-hmm. you know, um, that's the work that I used to even get in the door. Um, to the Portland Observer and the Scanner. Well, the Portland Observer in particular, I just like had that article, that op-ed, and some creative writing I had done at the school and said, hey, can I have a column? And then they just said, go write for us instead. Like, you know, and that that is why I'm a professional writer today is because Victor approached me, said, do you want Don Spiracies? And that turned into all the stuff I'm doing because I never really thought I'd be a writer yeah yeah that was actually um the next question i was like gearing up for but i feel like you had touched on a little bit about um how you got into writing but i am curious like i feel like we've talked about um all these other things you do but i am curious about like your writing practice and like um all your like work you do with like journalism and um yeah the the things you write for and like who you write for and um just like yeah where you are currently with your journalism yeah, so I started writing in like 2013, like for at least for the Observer, um, and then went on to the Scanner after that, which is the other black newspaper. Um, and yeah, like had the freedom at both of those papers really to to write about what I wanted to write about, which actually, you know, also gave me the feeling of being more connected because I was like finding more folks in community that did stuff that I did or had interests that I had um, but just also just fed my curiosity in general like of what makes things tick in this city like I think I had like general understandings around history or this but then like when you're sitting there getting press releases all day like you start understanding more of like the levers that get pulled 
and this is why this goes this way, or even this is why this gets reported this way, or, you know, like, there was, like, a lot of unveiling that happened in that time, um, being at the Observer and the Scanner, um, and they both gave me that space to be a writer who was, I think I was okay with words, you know, but, like, spending time having to get something out every week most of the time that would be on the front page like also forced me to have to like really think you know about how I'm putting things together because it's like my name attached to this thing um so yeah both I mean the the observer and the scanner like um you know indebted to them and that way of like giving me a start because I couldn't I walked in the door like cold call to the observer um and asked if I could have a column like completely cold call um and then harassed him for a couple weeks (laughs) um but yeah like uh also you know crazy Portland stuff like when I started there my my great grandmother it's like oh you know we're related to the Washington family Mark Washington is the owner of the paper now so it's like through some long bloodline stuff but I'm like oh we are actually related to them so through like her Seattle family connections it's like yeah that's technically our people um but yeah um in terms of writing that I've done more recently there was like pretty strong lull um of like doing any published writing um, but like last summer was wanting to do a lot more so I did some stuff for like Street Roots mm-hmm. um, did some uh, the iHeartRadio thing which that was also a whole thing because it was like these hour long episodes I was doing it with other journalists um, it was like four of us working together but um, you know doing that and getting to document the protests um, that were happening in the city and you know doing that stuff with literary arts even was like I was already looking at doing these like seminars but you know it just ended up being perfect time you know to talk about you know to have the bleeding out albina you know uh, scholar research that Karen Gibson did and uh, Ta-Nehisi talking about case for reparations and Mm-hmm. You know, to pimp a butterfly as like things that we're gonna dissect in the midst of you know Portland turning up. Um, but I, I liked it. It was a lot of fun. Just kind of also treating uh, a music piece like something that should be dissected. You know, against these texts, like just as valid as any scholarly research. Or mm-hmm. like this, this is like a a different form of documentation like Mm -hmm. this is like a living this is the same policies you're looking at this art is like the like breathing version of what people are um you know describing happened in 67 well this is a child of the policies that you're talking about and this text is all about that so it was fun to do that um you know for a few weeks i'll probably do another one at some point 
yeah it seems like it seems like a, a lot of your writing is about exploring the histories and the archives of like Portland and Oregon would you say that that's like one of your primary focuses yeah I, I like diving into history period but specifically like you know black history mm-hmm. here in the city and state i think there's a lot here even even beyond portland mm-hmm. you know what i mean like it's not just portland there's so much to be found um and understood and i think so much of it's been buried um yeah. you know um i think even because i work so much in the space sometimes i can forget how buried it is until i have that lift conversation with somebody mm-hmm. you know like yeah. people don't know about this stuff people do not know and then they don't know not just like quick facts oregon banned some black people and said they whip them every six months like getting people to understand how that ties into the gentrification of northeast how it ties into the police force as it exists like these are like even deeper type of like understandings that i want to bring people into and try and spend my time bringing people into because um i think a big part of how shifts happen is people understanding history their connection to history and you know it's not just about like outside history to me like even the stuff i'm doing with ancestry right now like that's mm-hmm. a part of me understanding my own personal lineage and like getting a nerd out on that and spending more time with like how i fit into like my my direct lineage because i think it's a reverberation like my specific story of being somebody who's from northeast has been in private schooling as a first generation this Mm -hmm. who is documenting stories is one part of a puzzle that's you know bleeds out into the the general stories yeah one thing that the you know the boon of 20 June summer 2020 brought out was this uh, you know interesting um, sort of rush to Examine and understand critical race theory, um, and with the fizzle came the backlash, um, and you're seeing a lot of like states um, and um, legislative um, pushback against critical race theory in schools um, and within um, the constructs of education. Um, what do you think about that? How do you think that bodes for like the future of? critical race theory of like understanding race and history in this country yeah i don't know exactly what critical race theory is that's been another part of the conversation yeah it changes depending on who you're talking to but i think as a generalizing people understanding race as it relates to the individuals and the institutions is a thing that most people don't have (laughs) surprise uh, yeah i think that's um if that's the generalized thing with critical race theory and pushback against it, I think that's expected. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, we all know, like, the things that Trump, you know, represented were there mm-hmm. and have been there um, for decades. He just, like, pressed a button and just kind of pushed it, pushed it, pushed it really hard. 
excuse me, but I watch Fox News every week on purpose. Um, yeah, because I will be voting for Donald Trump in 2024. Sorry to tell you guys. Now I'm playing. <laughs> um, no, I watch Fox News every day, though, or like every week, because um, I like to have a base understanding of the talking points that are coming from that side on different things like critical race theory Mm -hmm. like I don't understand critical race theory specifically by watching Fox News but I understand that they're upset they're very upset (laughs) Um, and uh, like I was watching Tucker I watch Tucker he's my favorite (laughs) Um, his face man his face he's so confused he has like a full like wooden set right it's like all wood like log his no Tucker has the he's got the real sleek background like he's a news anchor but he's not um but yeah he was just saying they're making white people go around and talk about why they feel guilty for being white what do you feel about that but anyways <laughs> I feel like there's been such a deep seated anger around um people giving understanding around how the wealth of the country has been accumulated. Um, I think there's a lot of scapegoating for people trying to do even basic things like regulation of um, whether it's things around the environment or regulating uh, education, regulating anything and if housing, it comes to housing, Anything that is supposed to like halfway mitigate years of like overt saying black people will not own anything Mm -hmm. and then saying we're going to do some equitable policies that um, make sure if you make a certain amount of money like you're basically broke like you're broke that will give you some dollars that we hope might be able to maybe help you not fall into destitution mm-hmm. like people start getting angry like they're trying to get black people reparations right um which we are trying to get reparations yeah <laughs> but anyways i feel like i'm getting off the, the thing <laughs> i just feel like when it comes to teaching race in schools like it, it, the this should be happening i think people in middle america and White America in general should be understanding mm-hmm. whiteness as an identity that has been given mm-hmm. in this country. It's not a fact of matter. There's no white country in this place. Like, that should be something that white folks question, too. Like, there's no white anywhere in mm-hmm. this whole planet. Yeah. It's just a thing that's been made. And the same, and same thing in many ways with blackness. Like, white and black have been placed in this place and made it on two ends of the spectrum on two very everything is built to fall in between those things everything yeah and it affects everybody's lives in this country because it's the two other inventions of the country right um and i think truly everybody would be better for understanding it not better in the sense of like I think there are losses 
that come with that for certain groups of people. Mm-hmm. You know, once there's a question, questioning yeah. that starts to happen. Um, and I think that's the people usually feeding the fear, people who have stuff to lose. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. People aren't ready to reconcile that. Like, there's this idea that we can all get to this warm, happy place without anybody having to make sacrifices or lose anything. And that's just not realistic. Yeah. Period. Not within the guise of capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, like, I don't know what how critical race theory plays out in terms of Oregon, but, like, there's so much deep-seated, like blood like actual blood on the state's hands that like yeah i can feel why certain people wouldn't want to start peeling that back like you wiped out groups of people and then you made tribes of people who didn't even live with each other live in these small kind of like places Mm -hmm. um and then you said you would kill black people if they came around here mm-hmm. or at least humiliate them and destroy their livelihoods and they can't own anything. Mm-hmm. And then you started giving white families who still have living, breathing people living here today, like the opportunity of land that you built your foundation on. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of things tied up in the major institutions of today. And that's pretty much for any place. Yeah. Um, for I mean, any you, place in this country, like there's just so much blood tied up in the thing, and there's descendants of those harms. Yeah. And so then you have to start dealing with like the realities, yeah. <laughs> like. And that's before you get to the metrics of how to even get anything in present day American culture. You look at degree requirements, wage systems, mm-hmm. like all of those things are tied to capitalism and the history of slavery in this country. And we still use those things as metrics for people to get ahead in this country. Absolutely. It's all, it's all got to go. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. So like, and people aren't ready to, to, as you say, peel that back. They just don't want to. It's a lot. It's yeah. a lot. And the hard thing, and like, it's even harder because like on the other end of the spectrum, it's just like pure myth. Mm. Like there's just like pure myth that we all get sold, like to some degree. Like even the cherry tree thing is a lie. Mm-hmm. Even George Washington saying he wouldn't cut down cherry tree is a lie. Like that's not even the truth. He had black people's teeth in his mouth. Yeah, he didn't have wooden teeth. Like you know, like it's it's just like we get sold purity, like when it's like the very opposite it's like the exact opposite of purity that's happened yeah there's ideals that have been written down that actually sound like a thing you know yeah um but that is not what really any of the realities of the country are founded on from way back to you know people uh you know, deploying tear gas and mm. saying that they believe in and racial equity. You know, tear gas, having... which was originally tested on black people. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I mean, it all just ties back. It's it's all just this one strain of yeah stuff. Yeah. Critical race theory. Critical race theory. <laughs> 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 um, I'm curious, like, what uh tips you would have for other organizers um other people wanting to make changes 
I think there's no perfect way of stepping into the work. I think that's an important thing to know. Like, um, I think there is value in trying to educate yourself and, you know, come to people who have been doing the work um, in whatever way. Um, and, you know, that's can go from, you know, learning about people who are dead and gone to understand what they've done to reaching out to somebody in your own backyard and saying, what have you done? And can I work with you? Can I work alongside you? Can I support uh, your work? I have these skills. Um, I would like to offer them or I'm trying to hone in on the skill. Um, I think the thing we were talking about earlier, like rest is a real thing. Um, I do see people like I am younger, 29 and stuff, but I do like realize now, like when I'm looking at people who are younger than me, like you have more energy, Mm -hmm. like for real, it's a real thing. Like you just have more of a thing and it's not that I can rest it away. Like I just know that you have more fire. Like there's, there's a thing there. Um, and I think that's like, just a generally natural way of life, you know, like, um, and so I think for people who might be older, you know, like feeding that and not trying to call people or talk down on it. Um, I think you can, you know, there, I don't think there's any harm in letting younger person know where they're kind of like doing too much you know on a certain tip but usually they're not doing too much they're trying to do a thing you know and so um yeah I think feeding that um what was the question um yeah like tips for organizers people yeah yeah um I know for me it's been a lot of Taking in information, sitting with the information, being around people who've done more than I've done. Um, and that also doesn't have to be somebody that's older than you. Like, I learned my upsetter name, I think, twice in this, like Sharita. Mm-hmm. I, I learned a lot from Sharita. Um, I learned a lot from people like my friend Talilo Marfil, mm-hmm. um, you know, who has his youth center uh, ascending flow. Um, up there on 122nd um you know uh i learned a lot from bruce poinsett mm-hmm. um who's another writer i told him like when i was first starting i would, I would kind of be sitting there looking and we're we're the same age basically i'd be like he went to journalism school he's done the whole thing i'd be like how might bruce start this article <laughs> you know um so yeah i think being humble enough to know that's the thing you know, like it's okay to to learn from other people um, and ask for their advice, and you know, know that you don't have all the answers. Um, and then also know when you do have some answers and pass it along. Don't hoard it. Um, I think share power um, when you get it. When you get in the rooms, um, I'd say speak people's names um, so you don't get uplifted as the only the voice of the the movement or the people or like speak other names um spread that network 
bring people into meetings when you can. Um, don't fall in love with being the one. Mm. Yeah. Highlander syndrome. I don't know what that is, but... I, yeah. There can only be one. There can only be one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I feel like you've, like, you've touched on this um, a little bit, like, at different points, but I'm curious about this idea of, like, doing the work and, like, what is the work, um, but more specifically to, like, you talk about, like, watching, like, Fox News and, like, needing to, like, consume media and, like, needing to know, like, what the, like, other side is up to, and I'm just, like, curious about... Um, I feel like it, it, like it's like an increased exposure to this kind of like ideas or like venom or like poison, and then it's like, how does it like you know this idea of doing the work, which is like results in like having to be I feel like exposed to that so much on a such a regular basis, and um, yeah, like maintaining yourself from that or like you know like how do I like not have this like all this like news I'm taking in or all this negativity or like all these like things that are still like wrong or all these like ways and i'm constantly learning that shit's fucked up or been fucked up or like people are evil and like doing like like how do you yeah stop it from like getting too into you i guess if that makes sense i think it's the same thing i've been saying like rest chilling like uh i think last weekend like i didn't do any of that stuff you know like I went and watched the Cruella movie, you know, like that, and that movie is super dope. Wait, is it really? It's I how think, many times do we have to retell that story? But that movie, to me, like it was like from the production, the music, uh, soundtrack, the whole time was like fire. Huh. I thought like the visuals were crazy, and I didn't go into it like, oh, I want to go watch Cruella. Like it was a movie while I was watching. I was like, this shit is dope. Like. Okay. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't the type of backstory that I expected out of the the movie. But okay. yeah, I think taking those moments where like if excuse me, most of my day is tied up with some of this stuff in one way or another. Like I was saying, from my day job to the different things that I commit myself to as official points of work to resist and then things that have nothing to do with like anything people would see on camera or see on a zoom or at a meeting there are things that I'm doing that have nothing to do with that Mm -hmm. and it's a lot so taking those moments to get out into places where I can reconnect with myself are important and you know sometimes like I don't need to watch that thing at that time you know, or I don't need to even pick up the phone for this particular conversation. You know, it's like a because I know what this conversation is going to be, or I'm not going to respond to this thing because I can't. You know, like, um, or there is this community meeting that people would like me to be at. It's okay if my voice isn't there on this day. You know, like, Sometimes I can't, you know. Yeah. That's just the thing. Like sometimes I can't. Most of the times I I can, but I'm finding more times to say, all right, I'm I'm a chill, you know, for my general well being. Because it's I do feel it when I'm letting all the things be that all the time from the time that I wake up to the time I go to sleep. 
you know like if everything that I'm consuming from the media in the morning to the entertainment at night being something of resistance like then that's that's also not the natural way of being either you know like we we there are people who are bred to to fight and resist and that's the thing but I don't think as a human being that's supposed to be our natural state is taking in like dehumanizing content or content where you have to fight for your humanity all the time so try and be aware try and be aware I'm not perfect at it at all but. Um, you mentioned uh, Bruce Poinsett earlier mm-hmm. he's um. whack <laughs> I take it back I take back everything I was saying about him <laughs> <laughs> um, in researching you, um, I came upon your Twitters, um, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that you are kind of uh, moderating or hosting a series of dialogues with him about um, reform versus abolition. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that project? Yeah, we are doing Reform versus Abolish, a debate on public safety on June 15th um, at 6 p.m., on the Vanport Mosaic Live or Facebook Live, um, and yeah, so he had hit me up and was talking about he wanted to do like a debate um, in general. Um, and I told him I think reform versus abolish is something that would be of worth mm-hmm. putting into the public sphere. I think a lot of dialogue even happens just like on Twitter and there can be a lot of dunking on people on Twitter or just like talking points on Twitter where or social media in general um and I I don't know how many minds are getting changed through just like a social media back and forth um but yeah I um we decided we wanted to do this um and have people represent one point of view or the other and so we're going to have Max Smith who's been you know on all the platforms uh, in the last year um, pushing for abolition and you know kind of got lifted up um, as one of the main voices uh, from the city Um, and not just media picking him out but I think a lot of people also identified him as somebody who could speak to a lot of um, what was happening on the ground. Um, And then Vince Jones-Dixon, who is a Gresham city councilman. He's the first black city councilman um, in Gresham, but he uh, is going to represent the the reform side. And, you know, he uh, does work with law enforcement and... um, you know, I was glad that he agreed mm-hmm. uh, to to this debate because I think, you know, as a public official, that's a different type of risk to take, yeah. you know, to be in that space uh, with this topic um, and represent that point of view. Yeah. Um, and I think, but I think it's really dope because you don't get to see, you know, like private citizens, so to speak. Um, with public officials in a debate, you don't even get to see debates really outside of like somebody trying to take office spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. So like actually taking on a thing that is happening 
that is affecting our lives, that affects policy, um, I think is going to be something different. So um, are you going into this conversation as like tabula rasa blank slate, or do you have a particular opinion about where like we should fall in the reform versus abolish conversation? Yeah, I think with, you know, the proper training and with some like really tough community conversations, we can have a stronger belief. What? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Oh, okay, good. Thank God, because I was I I had my serious poker face on. Okay. <laughs> Did you know he was joking? Uh, okay. <laughs> no. So you're just gonna ride that whole thing out? I was gonna try and keep a straight face for like a minute. Okay. I was like, what? No, you know, the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, I think if you're you're black and aware, in general, you will know that there's deep problems with the police. One way or another, you will know whether you're trying to reform or get rid of the cops. If you're black and aware, you'll know there's problems that are deep. Now, with that being said, I have not always been on the the place of like let's get rid of the police like that's not been my thorough point of view it, it's really been in the last year or so that I came into like more of a place like yeah we just got to get rid of them like we have to get rid of the police force as it exists and try and come up with something that meets the needs of you know the people um when there's emergencies and things like that, but we don't need what is attracted to the police. We don't need to try and rule them into like a place of, um, you know, humanity. Um, this is what they are. Uh, like I was telling you off air, like even as I was coming into more, Understanding is like Karen Gibson, uh, who wrote Bleeding Albina, she also wrote the paper Black and Blue. And when I was reading that, it's like 45% of the Portland Police Bureau's arrests in the late 60s were black folks. It's the whitest city in America. That's crazy, you know? And at what point did that just get reformed away? You know, that type of being, that type of ethos. Uh, My mom grew up, or... I grew up with my mom telling me rather about the smoke them don't choke them incident, you know, uh, where they killed Tony Stevenson, mm-hmm. um, and choked him out, and um, you know the police officers who were involved in that saying, well, we should just shoot them since they don't want us to choke them. You know, that's where the whole smoke them don't choke them thing came from. My grandmother, I was talking to during that that time, and was. I didn't even bring up his name, but she was talking to me about how she felt about that moment. Like, I feel like something new might be happening and just was remembering Tony Stevenson and how that felt for her. Um, And yeah, I think uh, there was a deepening of understanding, too, in terms of like watching the nightly abuse that was coming from. The cops, like, 
and poisoning people, like the tear gas. Mm-hmm. Like I was doing, you know, research with Don't Shoot Portland um, about what tear gas was. I didn't really know. I just thought it was the stuff that kind of went out and made people disperse and tear up. But I didn't understand it was poison, like yeah. poison. Um, and like this is something that the police just get to use just get to um and that's in addition to everything else we know about the police and even working on the uprising podcast like um uh robert evans is the person who uh you know headed that thing up he has like a whole series of podcasts with iheart so he's got his behind the bastard series but um on episode one you know he was talking about how the Portland Police Union is actually the union that most police unions are modeled after um, huh. in the country. Yeah, people should check out that podcast, Uprising, A Guide from Portland, and the first episode is called Why Portland. So it talks about the history of the city, the history of the police here. Um, we'll include the link in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just like... You really start coming into a place and, and understanding like how deep seated things were. So, um, yeah, I think I wasn't necessarily in a place where I'm sitting here trying to figure out how we can get a body cam on the cops, but um, I thought there was something, something salvageable in the police force at not that long ago and I think there's been a shift into understanding for me that that's not the case um was there like a particular moment or event that basically solidified that for you I can't say like I there was just this one I woke up on this day and it was kind of the a series of things that just kind of led into a place. Yeah. And I think even with this, uh, I've used this example, and it's not to be insensitive, um, so, but I, I, even with abolition, I've tried to say if somebody's in like an abusive relationship and you're saying, well, <laughs> are you sure you need to get out? Like, or like how, what is your plan? Like, what is your, you know, like what's your five year plan? Like, you know, like the, these are the type of questions when it comes to the police force to me that like, it's like, we just need to get out. Yeah. <laughs> like we need to, are you going to help me get out? Um, and I think it's not even necessarily that drastic. I think once you start looking at the actual function of the police, once you start, breaking down how they're using their money how like it doesn't even make sense it doesn't even make sense what we put into this institution um what you think you're getting it's really just like a lot of payback on or not even the return you're just paying for the myth of like protection yeah but you actually look at like we We've increased the funding, like in the Portland Police Bureau, um, pretty much. I think like since 2010. Um, 
So like we put more than a billion dollars in the cops like over the last few years. Um, you look at response times, they're like very low. Um, <laughs> um, I was talking to this woman in the lift. She just like prepped me for this conversation. <laughs> but like uh, I was in a situation like my friend Laquita was doing a thing um, in Old Town where she, you know, was doing services for people, like getting people fresh clothes, showers, running it out of a, a coffee shop. Um, register ended up getting taken. The actual owner of the shop called the cops, mm. but she didn't. Um, but she was also the owner of the shop was out of town, so. She was just kind of in this situation So she called me up like Hey can you come Um, She called me and several other people Just to be with her in that moment And so we're all sitting there And There was A cop car That just passed on by Like passed by in that time Um and we ended up being there like two hours before the officer actually came. And then by the time that had happened, we actually found out who took the register, mm-hmm. had a conversation with them. Nobody ended up going anywhere. You get what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. nobody ended up going. Officer didn't do nothing. And we didn't want anything to happen to do it either. Like right. one of the other community members that came, it's like, you know, was able to have the type of conversation that needed to happen, <laughs> and like, you know, and everything that was supposed to happen happened in the sphere of her giving a call to me and the five, six other community members. The officer, when he got there, he's like, "Well, you know, sorry, I'm so late. It's you know the way things are right now." And it's like, just acting like the funding, the two million dollars or whatever that had been taken out at that point had something to do with the fact that there was literally just a slow roll of officer right by. But we also didn't want that response. You get what I'm saying? So um, I think the perception of what officers do also just needs a completely different like veil lifted from them. Um, because And also the fact that people think that the names that end up getting attached to the police like that is like the most egregious version of everything Mm -hmm. like take snatching somebody's life you Mm -hmm. know but there's so many other names that are in jails right now that shouldn't be there Mm -hmm. there are so many other people who have been harassed um people have gotten a look Mm -hmm. people who have not had a situation to fuse. People have had fire dumped on a situation, mm-hmm. right? Like, even you think about, like, I know people, like, uh, there are a few sections of life people usually kind of, like, ask about, like, what does it mean if you abolish cops? Like, there's murder, there's rape, and, like, domestic abuse. Like, those are places where they're like, what do you do in these situations? But, like, also when you look at the perpetrators of some of those things like cops are like some of the highest on that list so like are those the people that should be responding to those situations either yeah you know like uh, is that really the response that that you need 
is a dude coming in with a gun like gonna be the person that diffuses the situation you know like it's just one of those scenes it's been the option that's been given for across the span of of like you're in a situation call the cops and that's not what it should be at all yeah yeah so um yeah i don't think you can have enough conversations over the next hundred years that will change you know like like with like sitting down with cops and trying to like talk to 20 of them or have a, a presentation in front of them that will like massively overhaul the system like you just have to get rid of it and work on creating something else that responds to people's needs yeah um <clears throat> My last question for you, um, but to to tag onto that one, um, so maybe this is like a multi-parter. So like I see like the system, this like American imperialist like complex as like a Jenga tower, mm-hmm. and that um, the police are like one block within that. And then so sometimes I wonder is like is like the steps it takes to abolish the police. Does that like can that just be done like? exclusively without other things starting to like unravel not like in a negative way but like in a positive way like does us abolishing the police like lead to like other systems starting to like come undone other like oppressive systems starting to come undone or is um because at first i was thinking like yeah like you know we can just this idea of like funding other services to respond to the things that cops used to respond to like having like um you know, some service respond to, like, a drug overdose or some service respond to, like, domestic violence that isn't, like, police and, like, armor and guns and stuff like that. But then I was wondering, like, is that, is, like, thinking about, like, oh, let's just removing this one piece and then inserting these other pieces. Um, even though it's, like, abolishing the police, is that, like, uh, a larger reform within a bigger system? Or is, like, abolishing the police, should it, we think of it as this linked action to where, like, every step to abolishing the police is like stepping to like some other unraveling. Yeah. I think like abolishing the cops is like linked to reparations, you know, like they're, I think it's a part of reparations in truth, like taking that, let's say the, the, I think the math is right uh, on this, like the $2 billion in the last 10 years that have gone into Portland police. If that same money was being directed into our community, um, there would be drastic changes. You know, if, if there was, you know, if it was put into community, like same thing, like Laquita, like Laquita doing the work that she does on the ground with houses communities. If she had a significant chunk of that 2 billion, Dollars over the last few years, working with people who are coming out of prison and then enter into the streets, like there will be significant changes. Like I see the work that she does; it actually affects people's lives, you know. Um, but it's done with different type of budgets, you know. Um, if money was going to places like, well, Sharita knows how to get some <laughs> funds. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, but if, if dollars were going to places like BAPE and BAPE was able to expand, if, if money goes to places like uh, even works that I'm doing, like it affects the general community. Yeah. And so, yeah, there it 
does it gets us out of a stuck place that we've been you know we've been kind of stuck in this loop for decades decades and the things always in one way or another funnel down to being a conversation about resources and so anything that kind of redirects funds um means that we have to redirect away from hoarding you know like and like hoarding of funds and people who get to kind of disperse that hoarding of funds based on how they're feeling like and i think more and more people start to see that um when you talk about reparations when you talk about well the only reason these people have xyz is because there's been exploitation the only reason we see this type of outcome from this community is because that there's been a purposeful division away from us in dollars and community links and 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 um and stop treating like the outcomes that come from our community like facts of matter like things that just happen um so yeah, when people start doing math, then there is a forced conversation around the type of math that we just continue to invest in. So um yeah, I don't think defund or defunding and abolishing the cops is just a matter of like just getting rid of cops to get rid of cops. It's also talking about how we invest in the communities and it's not even to me just about Reinvesting dollars from the police budgets There's other places that we <laughs> Should be thinking about investment That's why I was talking about the stuff with You know my school and their endowment Like mm-hmm. y'all have A different level of money um, That could be Directed away From this kind of like Bubble that they exist in And you know I don't think it's even necessarily An insidious kind of bubble I think it's a bubble that's been developed Over the 100 plus years This institution has existed And has become a network of people Who Their families have went to the school For four generations And have went to Higher education uh, Institutions for this many generations Which means you just are networked within certain things of wealth you're just connected to wealth in a different way and you have to pierce that you have to take some of your your money and use it in a different way um so i think there's there's a lot of redirection of wealth and funds that has to happen in this country um beyond the police but the police are one of the ways that we can like most directly save people's lives um, in, in the grand scheme. I think reparations probably a scarier conversation for people. I think that's part of why even that word <laughs> I, I'm cautious around it being personally I'm cautious around using words like reparations for like here's my Venmo like, like cocktails yeah yeah like because i think those <laughs> i think that word has meant so much of a systemic overhaul of like how we do money mm-hmm. that i don't want in 20 years to be like well i gave reparations i gave it to john and i gave it to betty and <laughs> sheesh i even gave i gave 
five hundred dollars to 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 bape. No, that's not reparations. Yeah. That's some redistribution if you choose to, or a donation. People have been donating forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, no, I, I I'm cautious around how loosely I feel like that word is being used um, these days because I, I think. Um, even you know, like the uh, some survivors of the the Tulsa, um, yeah, uh, you know, Black Wall Street stuff. Like they were given uh, like a hundred thousand dollars from the city of Tulsa, I think it was, mm-hmm. recently, and now they're they're elders. One, yeah. so like there's that, and then I think for the general populace, like they see a number with a couple with a comma on it or a few zeros, and it feels like a thing has been done. But, you know, like we're talking about wiping out whole networks of money and connectivity, same way I was talking about with these bubbles of people go to certain institutions who know people who know people like you've wiped out an entire network, a whole ecology of people who were doing stuff together. And the payoff is for a few survivors in there. That's a legal years. settlement. That's not a reparation. Yeah, but that's <laughs> that's what we're starting to veer into. It's like, oh, that's, that's reparations. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I think people would like to see that word get normalized mm. so that we don't end up doing some of that unraveling of, like, how deep this stuff goes. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm cautious around how I use that. Well, I think... I think that is a, a good place to end our conversation. Um, so with that, uh, we'll launch into our segments. Uh, today I'm introducing a new segment entitled, Y'all Could Have Kept That. <sighs> Y'all could have kept that. I... Um, shout out people and organizations who are doing a thing that nobody asked for or wanted. Um, and I will ask you two to judge it on a scale of one to ten, one being, eh, I don't really care, to ten being, this thing needs to not exist and the people involved need to be punished. So, um, <laughs> the, first, the first thing I'm introducing for this segment is, a couple weeks ago, I suddenly felt like it was 1999 again, um, where I heard the, like, uh, the sound of ska um, in the background. And it turns out that the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones did a song tribute to George Floyd. I'm going to play a snippet of that song for y'all, and we'll cut this um, in the edit. Uh, here we go. Are y'all ready? Mm-hmm. Okay.
All right, I think that gives us a pretty good idea of what that is and a little backstory. Um, the song, the track is called "The Killing of Georgie," Part Three. It will appear on the Mighty Mighty Boston's new album, which is called "When God Was Great." Um, which actually it came out a couple months ago. So uh, apparently, some of the proceeds from this song and this video. Um, which I can no longer find, looks like they pulled it, um, <laughs> will go towards some sort of charity or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Some charity. I don't know. Um, you know, this is why Generation Xers like myself don't mind being forgotten about, because when we do come up, it, it's over some bullshit like this. Um, mm-hmm. so. Are you saying the Mighty Mighty Boston's or Gen X? Yeah, Scott. Yeah. I found myself at some ska concerts in college Uh-oh. back in the day. Um, <laughs> in, uh, or the Cambridge? No. Oh. New York. Oh. Mass. <laughs> anyway, I just feel like... Wait, New Haven, right? Yeah. New, 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 well, Haven. New York. New York. And New, yeah. Anyway, I just feel like, when are white people going to understand that they don't have the range to, like, why do they keep inserting themselves into these conversations? They could have just donated money. They could have just donated money and said nothing. From uh, from from my uh, time in the Dallas punk scene, I feel like that's very on brand with like um, punk ska, white people um, conflating oppression and being like white and poor, and then thinking they have this like relation to like a black experience. Um. Yeah, blackness <laughs> is poorness. Obviously. Right to white people, I think. <laughs> but I would give it, um, I wouldn't. On a scale of one to ten. I would, if ten is punishment, I would give it a nine. Okay. Um, all the things but punishing. But because I'm also just like, I feel so, it feels so surreal. Because I, I like, I never listened to Mighty Mighty Boston's, but I remember like being aware of that name mm-hmm. when I was like 14, 15, and now to think that they're still around. Mm-hmm. And then they're trying to like make some like cool, like, ska protest song is just like mind-blowing um with a video with you know random white man in suit right right dancing around yeah no black people in the video and then um, (laughs) just like yeah all this stuff i think is just it just like i think there's this like not to like i feel like i'm saying stuff that makes it sound like i'm trying to like make excuses for it which isn't the case at all um but i know there's this like punk history of like songs that are about like people that have been like killed by the cops and stuff like that and like yeah. i know like a lot of the songs are like white people that have been like killed by the cops and stuff so maybe they're like thinking that this was continuing that um trajectory or idea of again um singing for the downtrodden and oppressed <laughs> with their um ska all right <laughs> Donovan, what about you? A scale of 1 to 10, 1 being I don't really care, 10 being they need to be punished for this. Yeah, I, I think I'm going with a 9 as well. It's oh. a 9 for me, dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to be a little controversial and say I'm going to give it an 8 because, like, I've seen a lot worse. Um, it could be a lot worse. Um, so, yeah, that's where I stand with it. I love that um, you created the rating system, and you're like, I'm going to be controversial by giving it. <laughs> it's, like, it's your rating system. <laughs> All right, so now it's time for your segment. Just the facts. I'm stating facts, 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 facts.
A July 2009 report by the Sentencing Project found that two-thirds of the people in the U.S. with life sentences are non-white. In New York, it's 83%. Alright, <laughs> and now it's time for parting words. Um where we say goodbye to y'all fine folks. Um, first up, Max, do you have any parting words? Yeah, um, I'm going to do my usual plugs. Um, Androids <laughs> in the Tower 2021, um, July 16th and 17th, um, whenever we edit this video. Tickets may be available by that point. Um, performance projects since started in 2019, a um, bunch of 2020 delays, as you know. Um, yeah. And yeah, so it's coming, it's happening. Um, no stopping us now. And then what else? NTP has some news and projects and stuff in the work that is all I can say about it, but it's exciting. All right. And um, most importantly, thank you. <laughs> thank you uh, to Donovan. Thank you to our guests. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming and hanging out with us today and chatting and talking to us and sharing about yourself and all the stuff. And I appreciate you being here and we appreciate you being here. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, my parting words, again, to reiterate, Max, thank you, Donovan, for agreeing to join us on this rainy Sunday afternoon to talk about your work um, and just general thoughts on life and how you're doing um, and being so generous about that. Um, my uh, second volume of my graphic novel series, Watershed, volume two, in the black, drops on Juneteenth. You can pre-order at blackfempress.com. Written and illustrated by me, edited by Sam Saxby and Mike Lancet, printed in beautiful risograph by Sharita Town in a black art ecology of Portland, BAPE. Um, so essentially, this graphic novel was created and produced and will be distributed by fully just black people, which I'm very proud and excited about. And we will give the last word to Donovan. Yeah, well, thank you all both for having me. Um, talk about things and hope I didn't bore anybody um, <laughs> excuse me if you want to stay tapped in with me um, you can follow gentrification is weird on Instagram um, at ignorant underscore DMS please come through to the reform versus abolish debate um, on June 15th at 6pm uh, on the Vanport Mosaic Facebook live um, I think it's going to be a major, major thing. Um, and yeah. Um, do I have any like tight punch? I don't. I, I'm just, <laughs> just going to say uh, Bruce Point said is whack again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye, y'all. All right. Bye. <laughs>